Welcome to the Boulder Bassoon Quartet Podcast. I'm Ethan. I'm Kent. I'm Michael. And I'm Brian. I'm Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> well, first things first, fellas. This is episode 10. Double digits. Ooh. No. Wow. We've really done it. Should we uncork some champagne? <laughs> Open a bottle of wine. Got some homebrew in a kegerator. Do you have a name for your homebrew yet? Yeah, it's Ye Old Brew. Oh, right. And that's old with an E. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, moving on. There are very few things in the world that amuse me as much as watching Kent amuse himself. <laughs> <laughs> so we've stumbled across an article that uh, is of interest to us. This is taken from Mother Jones' website, whatever that is, motherjones.com. The name of the article is can concerts in bars and cafes save classical music? With it, right off the bat, without reading anything, without knowing what they're talking about, what does that article drum up to you guys? Can concerts in bars and cafes save classical music? Well, I'm thinking two things. The first thing is, Dazzle was a fun show. We should do that again. And the second thing is the obvious implication that classical music needs to be saved in the first place. Do you think Dazzle falls under this category? Yeah. Bars and cafes? I think Dazzle is first and foremost a performance venue that happens yeah. to serve food. I think what, just based on the title of this article, what they're going for is, you know, a bar and a cafe. Their <laughs> primary purpose is to serve alcohol and coffee, mm. and they're adding classical music to it, as opposed to someplace like Dazzle, which is a music place which has food, you know? Okay, I see your point. But if, I mean, it doesn't change the fact that Dazzle is a very intimate space yeah. and that the, um, you know, the environment, the atmosphere at Dazzle is uh, far less formal than what you would get at a traditional quote unquote classical music performance. I loved it, yeah, I'd love to go back. Mm -hmm. That was fun. The thing that jumps out to me in this title is can blank save classical music? Which means, can anything save classical music? Which means, classical music is dead. <laughs> it's dying. <laughs> what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the part that jumped out to me, too, is, is that the implication there is that it's, it's so far gone that it needs something, some drastic change to save it. And I'm not sure I'm convinced that that's true. Maybe it is. I, I do think other venues and other spaces are a smart thing to keep it thriving but how long do you think classical music has been in trouble that's a good question so the, this is the crux of the issue really is well the perception that classical music is dying or dead i think regardless of perception the past since 2008, things have been especially brutal. Because sure. the, that recession hits in a very sudden kind of a way, it seems. And anytime that happens, the arts apparently are the first things to take a big hit. And the last thing to rebound. Because so much of the budgets for arts groups comes from personal donations. Mm -hmm. Like for a typical nonprofit organization in the arts, they can rely on ticket sales to account for maybe 30%, maybe 30% of the budget. And the rest of it comes from grants and personal donations 
um, and other you know clever fundraising things. And that was brought up actually just last night at the Boulder Chamber Orchestra concert. He said how 25% of the income that's needed for the yearly budget comes from ticket sales. So when a recession hits, people have to be more careful with the personal funds, of course, which means that the funding for a nonprofit organization uh, is gonna take a hit and the government uh, pulls funds from grants. Some grants completely disappeared at that time. They were just mm -hmm. totally out. And so as a result, you know, everything takes it. So I think that for uh, orchestras, the last, what would that be? Uh, six years have been tough. And I think things are getting better recently. Um, but I mean, over the course of those years, how many orchestras closed? The Syracuse Symphony closed, uh, Hawaii, Philadelphia Orchestra, one of the, I think the, the nation's oldest orchestra, and it, you know, it's one of the renowned orchestras of the country, filed for bankruptcy. When I went to New York City in 2010 for the League of American Orchestras Essentials of Orchestra Management workshop, the news that was revealed was that the New York Phil had a $4 million deficit that year. And they, they didn't like blink an eye at it. It's like, oh, that's kind of like business as usual, it seems. Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, the Cleveland Philharmonic went on strike because they had to face severe pay cuts to the musicians' salaries to the point where it would no longer be a top 10 orchestra in the country. So the whole thing is a big bottle of, uh, you know, I mean, can of worms. There's a lot of cans of worms, and I think there's a couple of things that I would uh, either add or sort of redirect in all of what you just said. And the first is that the context of the recession is really important. The arts weren't the first thing uh, to get eliminated. Uh, the housing crisis and the housing bubble is what uh, is one of the major players in causing the recession. And so, well, yeah, I mean, the I'm first saying, thing... I'm not saying the arts caused the no, of course not. But, but the arts, I mean, before orchestras started collapsing from a financial perspective, uh, millions of homeowners and families were collapsing from the standpoint of being able to keep up on their mortgage, have jobs. Um, the, the budget crunch that orchestras faced is a symptom of the recession. And it's, it's a secondary factor. Um, and I guess the second thing is that, my larger point is simply that a lot of things suffered in the recession and it wasn't just the arts. Um, and what we know about the very slow recovery, the arts are also making a recovery. The, yeah. There was a report just a couple of days ago that um, Colorado's um, artistic donations and visitors from out of state coming to Denver and to Colorado in general for the purpose of the arts scene at large is up like 17% uh, this year from five years ago. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to the SCFD reception, which stands for Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, which is a wonderful and I think very unique program here in Colorado. The seven counties around Denver voted on in the, in the late 80s, um, adding a new tax, which would be one penny for every 10 bucks. And they used that tax specifically for the, all, the arts and culture. Um, and so the youth orchestra that I manage received the grants through this program, and they revealed some really cool statistics. Boulder is the eighth 
strongest concentration of the arts in the country. Mm. And Boulder County in particular had about $100,000 more to distribute than we did last year. And there was some speculation as to why that is. And people are saying, well, finally, the reception finally feels like it's over. But the other part of it was that we had this devastating flood. And so all these companies were building, you know, new constructions and repairing everything. And that was a huge influx of money to Boulder County, which produced more of this tax for SNFD. Right. This episode of the Boulder Bassoon Quartet podcast is brought to you by Forest Music. With the holiday season approaching, Forrest has a plethora of gift ideas for that special double reed player in your life. Or the mundane double reed player in your life. It takes all kinds. (laughs) Among the variety of gifts they have available include bassoon and oboe recordings, not the least of which is the first album released by the Boulder Bassoon Quartet, From the Opposite Shore, featuring New works for Bassoon Quartet by Rika Narimoto, Paul Hansen, and our very own Thomas Kent Hurd. Forestsmusic.com. So over the course of this whole recession and everything, everybody was struggling with the idea of like, what do we do? What do we do? How do we fix this? How do we survive? And many different people tried many different things. Success you know, one thing that would work for one group wouldn't necessarily work for another. And I think as a result of that, we're seeing more and more of chamber music in unexpected places. Professional musicians um, playing at really high level, but playing a different type of music or in a different place. More creative, maybe innovative approach. And I think we actually might be a result of that because the four of us studied music and we had no place to go. <laughs> there are so few jobs available out there and it's so extremely competitive for those jobs we wanted to keep playing of course and so we invented this this group and found ways to make something of it let's dive into this article a little bit here can concerts in bars and cafes save classical music the subtitle says in 30 cities and counting a group called classical Revolu- uh, revolution is bringing a waning genre back to the people so here again, we have this right off the bat, this idea of the waning genre of classical music. Um, we're not going to read through the whole thing, but here's a nice little highlight. Standing room only on Monday nights is power for the course at this cafe slash bar in San Francisco's Mission District. Because on Mondays, the cafe hosts live chamber music. The musicians, a mix of freelancers, conservatory students, and techies who play on the side, are volunteers with Classical Revolution, a program that brings high-level classical music into intimate public spaces. So it goes on to sort of describe the scene a little bit as the musicians sit down at the stage such as it is, raise their bows in anticipation. There's not the absolute silence you would get in a concert hall, but the, the din of conversation and clinky glasses and stuff kind of lulls just a little bit. And then it says... But when the musicians start to play, the crowd is enraptured. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) So what is really the difference at that point? It's still the same music. It's still the same high level. But what they're saying is because it's not this formal, imposing, scary concert setting that people can feel free to enjoy the music kind of where they're at. 
instead of trying to raise them themselves to the point where they they feel they can listen to classical music intelligently. I think they make a good point. Do you, wait, do you think the setting could detract from the? No, I don't. I, I oh, oh well, I I kind of agree with their point when they say that this intimate like everyday more of an everyday setting um, helps uh, them appreciate the music because I think it takes away that I don't know if it's a fear or if it's uh, there's a sense of alienation that can come up uh, for the uninitiated uh, the lay person first exploring classical music when you walk into a big concert hall and everybody's dressed up uh, and particularly the etiquette of you must sit very quietly in your seat and don't make any noise and you can't unwrap that candy wrapper right now and don't move until the audience is finished listening to the music and don't clap between movements um, I get a lot of feedback from the music appreciation students that I teach that this is a very off-putting and alienating kind of an atmosphere. I know that there was an orchestra in the UK that started a whole series. Um, well, they had a clever name for it. I can't remember what it was, but when you buy a ticket, it comes with a beer. Nice. And so you're allowed to bring it into the concert hall. Um, everybody, including the musicians, is encouraged to dress normally, not in a tuxedo. And I think when the musicians and the conductor took the stage, they would just kind of wander on stage from the seats. Um, so it was one of those things where they're trying to break down that barrier. The Colorado Symphony recently got rid of tuxedos. So I guess they're not going to ever play with tuxedos again. They'll wear <laughs> suits or all black, I think. I think that's a fantastic idea. Somebody told me how the tuxedo came up as like a servant's uniform. Like that's, that's where it originated. And somehow it became... Uh, associated with the fanciest thing you could possibly wear. Aristocracy. Huh. Um, anytime that I've played a, I played a couple of concerts wearing tails, and that's just preposterous. It's just, and it's so unpleasant to wear while playing. And then I, I played a couple of concerts wearing a suit, and that was, I think that's nice because anybody can wear a suit. But those little things make a big difference. The ba the Baltimore Symphony had a uh, thing recently where they worked with the design students at some school to design new uh, uniform or outfit or something for the orchestra. I think it's a program or a project that's still in progress. Uh, I don't know if they've released the results yet, but it's an interesting thing. The article continues. The easy exposure to classical music, up close and casual, is exactly what Classical Revolution is shooting for. The reason that more young people aren't interested in classical isn't the music, he explains, but the setting. Tickets are expensive. You have to dress up and be quiet for hours. It's restricting for a lot of young people. His goal for classical revolution is simple. It's high art, but it's not high brow. Oh, how about that as a catchphrase? Oh, the marketing department's out. <laughs> uh, we're taking it seriously and playing passionately, but we're taking out all the other stuff that you get in a normal classical music setting. The formal dress, the formal attitude, the stuffy environment. The music is kept at a high level, but the rest is chill. So there's um, historical context. When I was at CU, I was pretty good friends uh, with a guy named Will Farley, who uh, was a musicology student. And he was explaining to me one time that the whole um, concert etiquette is a construct of the Romantic period in music. That 
during the Baroque period, during the Classical period, so essentially before Beethoven, concert settings were much more social affairs or religious affairs. Right, and the music um, was there as entertainment. As entertainment. And, and then eventually it grew into art. Right. So even the, the works of Mozart, like last night the Boulder Chamber Orchestra played Mozart's C minor serenade, and it said in the program how almost all the harmony music and the stuff for serenades was designed to be outside, but there was something special about this one. And that is an indication it was written with a different kind of intent. It was actually designed to be listened to more intently. Right. Blah, blah, blah. So it was, it was starting to, you know, the artistic nature of music was starting to emerge from the entertainment side of it. And then, yeah, Beethoven took himself quite seriously. And, and Beethoven's audiences took him quite seriously. There's the, um, you know, the anecdote that hasn't been necessarily proven about uh, him pointing at the score at the beginning of Symphony Number no. Five, the bit that goes bum 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 bum, and saying, "Look, here fate knocks at the door," and you've got this whole Symphony Number no. Five that lasts for like 50 minutes, uh, alternating between major and minor, and uh, it should, by the conventions of form, end in the tonic key, which would be a minor key but the last movement of the symphony is in C major, and it's all boisterous and triumphant. And whether Beethoven specifically, explicitly intended this or not, the audiences received it, and the, um, the people who uh, listened to the symphony over the next 20 years believed it to be a statement about the human condition. And there are all these little details in there that if you're, you know, asking somebody to pass you the mutton or drowning in your cups, you, you miss these details. And so um, Will was saying that there's a particular aristocratic guy who would hold concerts in, it was either uh, Prussia or Austria. Uh, and he would dictate that his audience had to sit down and be quiet so that everybody could listen through the whole program and hear all of these details. And so it becomes this um, tradition that's rooted not necessarily in uh, the objective reality of what the music must be, but rather in sort of the psychological notions and social conventions of the time. And then it got way out of hand with Mahler. Right. <laughs> he, from what I can, uh, what I've been told, he ruined everything for everybody. Um, <laughs> whatever you do with your life, it was ruined by Mahler. <laughs> I mean, like, Mahler Symphony Number no. 3, isn't that the one that he said, I'm trying to... Well, to I portray mean, the entire universe yeah, in this it, it, symphony. It was about the evolution of the soul. Right. Oh. But I mean, the concert going experience, like he was such a schmuck, he would yell at the audience and tell them all to shut up and stuff. And really? That's what I've heard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the very strict formal ideas that we have of going to a concert may have originated from that. So I think there's a balance at play because the idea of like going to a concert as a social event and having fun that's fantastic. I think we need a lot more of that. The idea of paying close attention and understanding what's going on and the importance of what you listen to, that's also fantastic. Yeah. We need a lot of that. So how do you balance those two things? Not with Mahler, I think is the answer. So the answer to all uh, musical questions is no more Mahler. Yeah, pretty much. No more Mahler, folks. I really yeah, enjoy Mahler it out. for what it's worth. Yeah, I know you hate well, Mahler. I really love it. So Mike's incorrect, but the rest of us have figured it out. <laughs> I agree with Mike. <laughs> I mean, it's got a time and a place, and I can't listen to it all the time every day. 
<laughs> Brian is speechless. He just doesn't understand. Time no, is never in the places of the trash. It's-